Welcome to the Curb Cut Effect. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with David Legrand and Julia Legrand. David is a lawyer who has served on the Michigan State Legislature and is the owner of Long Road Distillery. Julie Legrand is a wonderful violinist who has played on NPR's From the Top. I'm really excited about this episode, not only because David and Julia are really talented, amazing people, but also we're related. David is my mom's cousin, and Julia is my second cousin and my Braille teacher. So without further ado, David and Julia Legrand. Thank you so much for being here. And Julia, I will start with this question. What are some misconceptions about blindness? Yeah, thank you for having us. I think I think some misconceptions are based around perceiving sort of a lack of capacity on blind people's part to do things that don't have anything to do with sight. Um, and so I think that assuming that blind people aren't capable of things is is a big issue. Um, I do also think there are sort of misconceptions around how blind people um, want to be treated or want to be interacted with. Um, I think there are sort of assumptions that blind people might need more help than they actually do, which is sort of related to the capacity uh, thing. So I think there's an instinct to offer more help than is useful. And, you know, that can also go both ways because sometimes it is helpful to have help offered. Um, But I guess those are kind of the big things that stick out to me. Yeah, I think just about every blind person at some point has just been like randomly grabbed on the street and then pulled to the other side and they're like, oh, it's like, I mean, it's always much nicer if people sort of first, you know, like, would you like help? Yeah. (laughs) And that's, yeah, I mean, that's something I noticed a huge difference with, uh, I'm a guide dog user now, but uh, when I was a cane user in between guide dogs, I noticed a huge increase in sort of assuming that I wasn't capable of, you know, getting from place A to place B. Um, and just a lot more sort of physical manipulation when I was using a cane than when I was using a dog. Um, I think people tend to assume, see the dog and maybe assume that I'm a bit, you know, more capable of doing what I need to do than they might otherwise assume if I'm uh, with a cane. No, yeah, and I I think some of the, it's always funny when people ask for, you know, ask you if you need help with something really simple uh, you know, when you're out in public, you're like, well, how, like at some level, like, how, how do you think I got here? Right. Yeah. No. Exactly. Like, <laughs> like I, I probably mean... crossed at least one street to get here, so I could <laughs> yeah. probably cross this street too. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so, and, and then David, I'm wondering, um, you know, having a daughter who's blind, um, what impact do you think that's had on your outlook on life, your uh, political career, your professional career, etc.? Well, I think it for me, I mean, most foundationally, and this is very foundational, but. It teaches you humility in the sense that you realize like, okay, the world is full of people who need stuff. And so I'll give you an example. When I was at a, at a conference of a blind organization that shall not be named, and I was at a breakout session and uh, they were all saying, you know, we want to like have our, help our kids be independent. And all about having your having you know everyone and they kept drumming bang on independence independence independence, and I finally raised my hand and said, "I'm not independent. 
I don't aspire to have my kids be independent. I aspire to them to for them to be interdependent in a meaningful community that values them and values their contributions. Like the the goal in, independence sounds lonely to me. Like that's not how I live my life. Yeah. Um, but it's it does make you realize, you know that that the whole idea of disability is putting a, a pin in a, in a continuum. Uh, I mean, another way to put it is we're all going to need virtually everything that people who we say are disabled need eventually, right? Yeah. Um, if we're lucky. If we're lucky, we all wind up with walkers or, um, you know, needing ramps instead of stairs or um, needing guidance or needing people help us in a bunch of stuff. But, but we need it all the time, too. I mean, we all get temporarily disabled every time we get sick, um, if we get sick enough. So um, it makes you rethink a lot of those assumptions. I mean, I think that one of the, I, I happen to be a Democrat, and one of the things that I bristle at often is the, is sort of the idea that people can pull themselves all by their bootstraps and that everybody is a self-made person. And I think, you know, that's just, that myth doesn't work very well in general. But it's certainly true that it's, it's not a fair thing for anybody who's got a, a disability that rises to the level that you're going to label it, right? But then you realize that's, that's we, all, we all have stuff. And so having the grace to talk about that, one of my favorite quotes from Jane Austen was, one of her throwaway lines is, it's much easier to give help than to receive it, which I think is deeply true. And I think that needing help is chastening, but being the parent of a blind kid means having to need help all over the place. Like you you can't do the cute little, I'm just going to take care of my kid nuclear family, uh, Wally and Juden Cleaver model uh, for, for child rearing. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know how to read Braille. I can't teach Julie how to read Braille. I can't do orientational mobility, um, but I also can't see the arc for her life as easily as I could if she was sighted. And being part of that space of how do you advocate, how do you craft that life of meaning? Well, I mean, we're working on that all the time. I mean, that was, yeah. you know, Julia just had that conversation a couple of weeks ago with a teacher who is, you know, either going to accept her or not accept her. And it came down to the question of, okay, you're blind. Can you do this? Does it make sense for you to try to do this yeah. because you're blind? Yeah. And yeah, on a, on a similar note, Julia, you know, classical music has a lot of, there's a large visual element uh, of that. It's something that I've recently struggled with. And you've done so many incredible things in classical music. And I'm wondering, what are some of the strategies that you have employed in order to be concertizing violinist? Yeah, I mean, I think the, for me, a lot of it is that they're always changing. I think I'm always trying to figure out better ways to kind of get around the things that are really uh, site-centric in the classical music world. I mean, on a very basic level, I read some braille music and I do some listening by ear, but obviously I memorize all the music I play, whether the people around me are memorizing it or not. So, um, you know, when I play in a chamber group or in an orchestral setting, everyone around me has music and I don't, which I think is a complicated issue. I think, you know, there are great aspects of it and I enjoy that I kind of really, I learn things much more deeply than I think often I would if I just got to read it the whole time. But I mean, at the same time, there are huge downsides to that. Like it, it does take 
time to memorize music and I'm always, you know, getting faster, but it's always sort of a balancing act of, you know, the fastest ways to learn and also the fastest ways to memorize music. But I think that's like the biggest thing that I actually need sight for in the music world. I mean, a lot of people, I think, assume that being sighted is necessary to like play in orchestra and chamber music. And I do think that it's, it is probably helpful, <laughs> realistically. Um, but I, I think there's so much, you know, non-sighted communication um, that everyone has to do. Um, you know, breathing and that sort of communication is super important, regardless of being sighted or blind. And so I think I just have to kind of lean more into those types of communication that aren't based around sight. Yeah, and uh, so so Julia uh, recently played on a concert series that I put together with some of my friends, and they put together a, a Debussy string quartet, and my friends uh, absolutely could not believe the depth of understanding that Julia had of the score, like knew all the other parts and, uh, you know, the intervals between them and where motifs were and which measures and rehearsal letters, things were on. It was yeah, incredible. You, you just know? have to, like, if you're going to try to do that, you have to, you have to know it in and out completely and you really do have to get a better sense maybe of your own part than you would otherwise but you also do have to really really know the other parts and in an ideal world every sighted musician would know everyone else's parts too but I do think there's a little <laughs> more pressure to do that when you aren't reading the music and when you can't have some of those visual cues I do think you need to like know how to hear everyone's part just even yeah. even more closely yeah um and recently you worked with NPRs from the top to put together programming on disabled people in classical music, uh, which I think is, is really cool. I'm really excited to you know take a look at the, the final product. And I'm wondering what sort of prompted you to seek out that project. And, and I don't know if, if you kind of learned anything uh, along the way or thought anything sort of was yeah, sort of curious about the process. Yeah, I think a big part of why I started it was kind of wanting to see um, more complexity around the stories that are told about disability. Um, and I thought like, I am a classical musician, that's the world I know. And so I was on from the top in 2021. And I was the first blind performer on the show. And so it kind of, you know, they've had, you know, performers with other disabilities along the way. And since then, uh, since my appearance, they did have another blind performer as well. But it kind of struck me that it would be really interesting to highlight the performances of disabled musicians through the show, but also to really explore kind of the nuances of their of their stories, um, kind of exploring both the positive parts of being disabled and celebrating those, but also, you know, taking time to acknowledge the parts of disability that are frustrating and that one does have to figure out how to get around. And so I, you know, in the interview part of the show, like each performer is, has a performance and then interviews. And so the interview component of all of these segments, I think really gets a chance to kind of dig into what's behind the performance and so I think, yeah, I learned actually kind of that what I had gone in with, my idea of wanting to share these more nuanced stories was I needed to learn that too. Um, I think I came in with the idea that disability is broad and, you know, is super varied and all that kind of thing. But I don't think I was 
uh, really expecting how varied it actually is. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I definitely got to learn a lot about totally different perspectives on disability that I kind of didn't think, like, I just didn't have exposure to. And so that was just really, really interesting to mm. learn from these young musicians on the show. And David, I'm wondering if you have any ideas for, for what types of policy could help ameliorate or address some of the major problems that the disabled community in the U.S. is facing today. Yeah, I, I think that, boy, there's, you know, you could spend your career for sure just looking at legislative fixes. And so I will be honest that when, in, when I do legislative work, I'm always sort of looking on two axes. I'm looking at how many people are, is policy X going to help and how much is it going to help them? So if you're going to help two people a whole lot, it's only two people. And uh, on the other hand, if you're going to help a million people, but not very much, then maybe you shouldn't do that either. So I tend to gravitate towards work that where you're going to help a significant number of people a significant amount. And so, you know, you and Julia are the tip of the blind disability iceberg in the sense that you're both bright, driven uh, people with lots of resources in their lives and lots of support. And I mean, the funny thing about you, Calvin, that that I just think is hilarious is that when you got blind, you just, you know, found Julia and learned how to learn Braille at a, at a speed that was mind blowing. You actually made Julia briefly think that she wanted to be a teacher, but then she tried teaching somebody else. She's like, no, I just want really talented students. Uh, so, well, uh, I, related to that, I, I told one of my, one of my good friends about Julia and he's like, well, it's a real shame. You'll, you'll, you'll always be the second most talented blind person in your family. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But, so, so the point is like, there are things that I, that I think about that in your space and Julia's space, but you know then I've got to remember that there are some macro things that like a lot of people have issues with so right now we're starting to deal with the whole how do you apply for SSI disability space oh, yeah. and you poke that and <laughs> oh, you get four or five <laughs> anecdotes immediately about how uh, obtuse and needlessly complicated things are yeah. and rules that make absolutely no sense yeah. uh, and you think wow like this is like you could reboot this system in I don't know a month or two and make it three times as good as it is probably. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard Julie's got a whole comedy routine about it. You know, <laughs> getting getting sent letter. You know, sending the blind person printed letters, uh, oh, yeah. telling them that they have to. Well, there's no way you could do that online. You yeah. can only send us a letter. Uh, you know, so oh, yeah. so she's trying to apply for for this process given that she's blind and it's completely not accessible to somebody who's blind. Well, yeah. like, that ought to be fixable. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think um, one of the things that strikes me is how easy it is um, for people in the disability space to get forgotten or underestimated and have policies kind of quietly shift while nobody's paying attention so it's an easy place to cut money it's an easy place to cut support and that can make you know the the cuts can make huge differences so just after julia got done uh with her k-12 education we found out there's going to be a major cut to support for blind students in kent county well that's going to have real consequences for all those folks but who's going to push back? Well, it's a small constituency, and are they going to get organized? Are they sophisticated? 
I mean, politics is the place where maybe the squeaky wheel gets the grease cliche applies more than anywhere I know in, in the world. You know, people who people get things who advocate for them and who ask for them and who know how to ask and who know who to ask. And, you know, if we're talking about people with, say, uh, you know, who aren't neurotypical, well, they're going to have a barrier to even articulating potentially the needs. Um, and so a lot of, I can't underestimate how much, how, how important it is to have people in the disability space self-advocate because so much of the advocacy I see is actually done by professionals who are coming alongside them. And that's by definition, seems to me suboptimal. So I'm, I'm walking alongside of it, but I also am always trying to be very, a little careful because it'd be easy for me to get very agitated and very worked up on this stuff. But at the same time, you and Julia have a lot of resources and you have the ability to do self-advocacy. And frankly, you know, your disability, there are a lot of people who have much harder lives than you guys do, uh, who have perfect, who have 20-20 vision. And so, you know, I, I think that for me, you know, even being in this space, I have to remember that a disability is a thing and it's a barrier and it's a, it's something to, to acknowledge and work through and work around and and build success around. But I'm always in the back of my mind thinking, who is it in society that needs the most help? And it's not always necessarily people with disabilities. That's maybe a, maybe not the answer you were expecting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but I, I will say, I mean, these things, they, they do compound in, you know, I mean, the, the, the term these days, like, around a lot, of course, is intersectionality. And I think, um, you know, talking about you know, those other demographics that are facing a lot of challenges, often, you know, uh, disability is something that is actually more common when you look at increasingly marginalized populations Absolutely. Um, for yeah, a whole host of reasons. And so in some ways it is, it is, in my mind, kind of, it can be a bit of a, like a, a surgical way of identifying the people at times who are like really, really left out where you're talking about someone who already has a lot of things, you know, sure. not in their favor. And then, oh my God, they're also blind or, yep. or have some, you know, other physical impairment or, or, you know, cognitive impairment or something like that. Yeah. And in a sense, I suppose like a, a positive or a negative way to spin that might be that like, in some sense, people with disabilities can be your canary in the coal mine. So mm -hmm. if you look at, you know, your friend who um, worked on my last campaign a little bit, yeah. he's potentially a very isolated guy, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, he's living alone in a housing complex with really limited options for getting employment. And all of that stuff can really compound. Yeah. And that might lead you to think, okay, so there are a lot of people in our society who are pretty alone. How do we address issues of loneliness? And that could come out of, I mean, it's certainly true yeah. that, that, I mean, one of the things actually, and I guess this is a good way to pivot this. Um, so for example, people who are profoundly blind like Julia, mm -hmm. not only could she not read facial expressions axiomatically, mm -hmm. but the way that, I mean, I'm instinctively looking at you right now as yeah. I talk, talk to you because the way that most sighted people signal who they're talking to yeah. as they turn and they look at that person. Yeah. Um, well, that makes it hard to, for blind people to socialize yeah. with people who haven't figured out how to talk to them and who haven't figured out that they might not always understand who's talking to them. So, you know, if you're at a table of six people and you're trying to figure out whether somebody's talking to you yeah. and if they just look at you and start talking and don't give your name. Yeah. Um, well, that's that. Then you've got then you've got a, a real barrier to 
to being part of community, right? And there are all kinds of barriers to being fully part of community. And so picking away at that can make you think, okay, so why is this a problem? It's a problem because people shouldn't be lonely. It's a problem because people should be in community. Well, there are lots of ways that we stop people being fully part of community. I mean, you, you know, that is what racism is at its core, right? Like, I don't want to be part of a community with you. Um, that's what, and so, and so, you know, ableism, if you want to put it that way, is another way to sort of, that you're implicitly making a choice to say, I don't want to be bothered with, you know, your need for a wheelchair or your need for braille signage or your need for a quiet environment or whatever might be applicable, right? An overly stimulating uh, environment if you're somebody that's maybe on the on the autism spectrum. And look, I'm not an expert on all of this stuff, but the point is you're right. Folks with disabilities can sort of be leading indicators that can show you bigger social problems. Yeah, sort of connected to this. I think, you know, education is something that we've all thought about quite a bit. And I'm wondering, I think maybe we'll limit this to blindness. I think it's, you know, a pretty very specific case mm -hmm. um, when it comes to employment and education, you know, the needs there and, you know, the challenges. I'm wondering if each of you could maybe speak to what you think is, is going well and maybe maybe what needs to be improved or, or something along those lines, just kind of like the state of education. <laughs> um, and it can be really specific. Uh, yeah, so, but uh, yeah, maybe we'll start with you, Julia. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that comes to mind immediately, and that's a very complicated issue um, around, you know, educating blind young people is like braille versus listening. And, you know, I am, as you know, very dedicated to braille. Um, but a lot of, and a lot of students aren't taught braille either because they read large print or because they listen. Um, and, you know, as I grow up and need to read more stuff faster, I am becoming like much more aligned with the idea that like, yeah, listening is actually good. And I've kind of, you know, I've lost my uh, initial antagonism to like listening to things. Um, but I do think that not giving students who, you know, have too little vision to uh, read large print, not giving those students the option to read Braille, I think, and to learn Braille is pretty problematic because, I mean, I think that we have kind of decided, you know, as an educational, with the educational system that, like, you know, people need to learn to read. Um, and so I think that, you know, just because people, people reading with their eyes, um, blind people should also, I think, really be able to have the opportunity to read Braille um, because, you know, I think it's so important to learning how to spell. I mean, for example, to just being like a truly um, literate person. Um, and I do think, you know, listening is great and can totally accompany that and, and can replace that. But I think giving the student the tool of Braille is is really important. And then I also just think that, you know, like we were talking about those like funding changes. I just think that there are so so many programs that, you know, are, are getting cut at, you know, various levels. And so I think like keeping, you know, keeping funding for these blindness programs going is like pretty important. Yeah. I, I also, I'd say that, you know, back to our question of like leading indicators, I, I think there is a, at least a case to be made that 
you ought to be building a system where you assume that the blind person is going to be capable of achieving excellence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So not just, hey, we can get you through high school. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we can, you can have a job, you know, working for Goldman Sachs potentially, or you can be a lawyer or, well, and, and so... The, yeah. the, the sad truth, and it, it, it's it's in some ways easier to get one of those jobs than a lot of service jobs, which I think is one of the things that I, I think really has caused a, a, you know, has been difficult for me to even get my head around. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like the, <laughs> the ability for blind people to get kind of the jobs that most people think of as jobs of, of last resort. It's incredible. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's easier to be, work at a top law firm than to work at Starbucks, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, not, you know, in, you know, no disrespect to any sort of service work, but I mean, it's just the availability of, you know, jobs that can be done competitively in a, you know, fast-paced, highly specialized economy by a blind person are, are very few, but most of them tend to be incredibly intellectually taxing, right? Right. But, yeah. but for example, um, you know, the state of Michigan just decided that they were going to support educational work at the community college level and not at the actual, not at the four-year degree level, yeah. not at the university mm-hmm. level. Well, yeah. that's, that's an odd choice, yeah. it seems to me. So... I mean, I generally, again, one of one of the my soapboxes I constantly am on um, in politics is, in the, the the provocative way I put it is I say college is the new high school. Like maybe fifty years ago, graduating from high school was a differentiator that would allow you to get a job. Obviously, it's not now. Well, college isn't even a differentiator that can get you a job yeah. necessarily now. Like more and more people just have to go to grad school. Well, if yeah. that's true, you better be building systems that are assuming that that's going to be a real option for people. But. Yeah, and I mean, I was just um, <laughs> on a panel for um, the national sort of state administrators of uh, vocational rehabilitation. Um, and it was kind of interesting to hear kind of about their shift in policy where they're really trying to build, you know, sort of across these different um, agencies of which, you know, like the Michigan Bureau of Services Blind Persons is obviously one um, where they're really trying to sort of push career development over like procuring jobs. And so they're kind of looking at that by like partnering with businesses and sort of trying to sort of build those relationships. Um, and I do think like that is kind of a, yeah, I definitely think that's like a positive step, like really focusing on, you know, where can we help our, you know, customers or clients or whatever you want to call them sort of have these um, real job experiences because it is often difficult for, you know, blind people to get these internship experiences if there's no sort of prior groundwork laid of like, you know, this is how you deal with a disabled person and like this is how a disabled person can be valuable to your company. Um, And so I think like that sort of partnership is interesting and kind of encouraging and I'll be, it'll be Interesting to see sort of how that develops, too, I think, on, like... Well, and it's not just good for that person. It's good for the next person in line. No, exactly. Like, that's sort of the whole concept, right? So, a grim anecdote that I sometimes tell is, in my law firm, we had an assistant, and she was... Didn't talk, well, we didn't know this when I hired her. She was completely blind in one eye because there's an amoeba that you can get in, in uh, lakes down in the south in the U.S. that can, like, get into your eyes if you're unlucky. And, like, if you're just swimming, you can get an amoeba in your eyeball and it can destroy your vision. So one of her eyes is gone. And she was having the, the process of starting in the other eye. And 
as far as I know, they stabilized it, but they certainly did as long as she was working for us. But there's a moment when she was like, I might go blind. And as the father of Julia, I was like, wow, this could hardly be an easier job to do if you're blind. Yeah. What you do all day is you answer the phone and you work on the computer. We can get you some adaptive technology. Yeah. Like I'm like, right, this is like you're sitting at a desk all day. Yeah, all yeah. we need to do is figure out how to get you to be able to use the phone and use the computer. We're yeah. done. And yeah. I went and told my partner that about her diagnosis and the first words out of his mouth, nice, compassionate guy. The first thing he said was, well, she can't work here. <laughs> right yeah. and i was all ready to retool but yeah. you know he just could he couldn't imagine somebody blind being our receptionist yeah and i i think it goes both ways like i i think most people just the ways of the blind are just completely obscured to them right. so they're either like oh yeah no that's totally gonna work for you to be like yeah like a blind basketball player it's like no like there are there are some challenges <laughs> yeah no exactly i also think there's like sight. oh yeah. like you know you're so capable like you don't need support it's like okay well i still like need assistive technology like yeah. there's like capacity does not mean that i don't need assistance like i think that's a paradox yeah. that people often don't grasp too yeah so yeah i think it goes both ways but yeah and i don't know which is ultimately more pernicious like I, like it's, the best is for people to have a, a robust understanding of like okay this is a screen reader here's how it works here's right. braille house here's how it works here like the sort of limitations of these forms and the like the great things that these forms can do and you know uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah unfortunately most people either have this like very magical notion of what blind people can do like I think you just like use your ears right yeah, to, no, like, exactly. to shoot the basketball and you're like no <laughs> not at all um, uh, I, I've actually never talked to someone about basketball this is purely yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah or, or yeah like they're just like there's just there's no like oh actually this is this relates to you, Julia. I remember this is way back in the day, and maybe this, maybe my memory is slightly false, but this, this has been like 15 years ago. You won some competition, and I think you got an iPad. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe this is totally <laughs> just a fever dream. But <laughs> anyway, but I, I vividly remember saying like, wait, how would a blind person use an iPad? Like, right. it's like the most visual technology ever. Like, that's its whole shtick. Um, there's no buttons, basically. Right. Um, and now I use the iPad all the time. Right. Right. And uh, I think it's great. I think most blind people either have an iPad or wish they had an iPad. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think it's... Um, and I, I mean, I like, I think that's in my present work, I think kind of one of the funny things about it is, you know, I'm mostly just educating business owners about the needs of blind and other otherwise disabled individuals mm -hmm. and the funny thing for me is like this is mostly really new information to me which is right. i think right. helps me to be a, a relatively patient ambassador of the, <laughs> sure. of the disabled community because it's like well like three years ago i didn't want to actually but until i went blind i didn't know what a screen reader was right, right. yeah like right. which is right. so insane to me and like you know it could be braille i mean everyone knows that braille exists but right. even like if somebody's like gun to my head like how many how many dots are in a braille cell you're like it's between four and eight four doesn't make sense it's got to be eight or like i don't know like yeah. um right like right. so why, i mean to some extent like why would you right like right. i mean yeah. you hope that people know and you know will find out but i mean a lot of people don't know a blind person right yeah. like that's just how you know how it works out statistically yeah uh. Well, anyway, it has been such a pleasure having both of you on. Oh, yeah. um, thank you. Thank you for your time. And yeah. Um, Fun. <laughs> see you guys both around. Right. <laughs>